Well, before we have our first speaker up, uh, you know, churches all over the country, one of the ways that Christmas is often is celebrated is by uh, what is called Advent, the, the preparation, the time that leads up to Christmas. And one of the traditions is that each Sunday uh, in December leading up to the Christmas itself, that there would be an Advent reading, that somebody would walk us through this story of Christmas week by week. And of course, uh, traditionally, a candle is lit for each of the weeks of Advents. And as we talked about last week, the symbolism is this light beginning to come into the darkness, that that darkness would begin week by week to be illuminated by these lights. And so uh, what I've decided to do is as we read through these Advent passages, uh, we're hearing from different people sharing their testimony each week. I thought, let's have different people come up and share uh, the scripture reading for each week. And so I asked my wife, Ashley, who I don't know if has ever been up to speak, uh, although she says, I've got sermons to preach, you know. So she uh, has never had the opportunity yet. So she's going to come up and lead our first Advent reading for the month. All right, Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray over that word this morning. Heavenly Father, we uh, receive the words from Isaiah that it is unto us that a child has been born and it's into this darkness that you have shown light. And so we receive this morning this promise, this hope, that into the darkness of our own lives and our own struggles, the light has come, that this child has been reborn, and that his kingdom is here now and coming still, this kingdom of peace, this kingdom in which all war and violence would end, in which his government and the peace of this earth would be never-ending. And so we receive it this morning, and we pray, God, that that light would continue through this season to build in our hearts, that hope would continue to build as we anticipate the culmination of this Advent, receiving you, King, King of Peace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our first speaker this morning uh, sharing with us in our Emmanuel series is Paul Smith. Um, If you've had the opportunity of getting to know Paul over the last few weeks, he's uh, relatively new to our congregation. You've probably been coming uh, six to eight months, something like that, in July. That's about right. Um, And I've had the privilege of getting to know Paul, though our paths have not crossed. Uh, For a long time, Paul was an editor at the Assemblies of God National Office here in town. And as I've gotten to know him, found that he's had the opportunity to work with and help edit some remarkable writers and authors. And um, I've always respected Paul's insights. Uh, He's shared those with me, and we've had the opportunity to to grow and talk through those over lunch before. And so uh, he has shared his testimony with me, and I thought it's a, a really important one for you to get to hear. And again, one of the great joys of sharing our testimonies with one another is, as I've said before, getting to know each other beyond just a handshake, a name, and where do you work, or what do you do? Um, And so I know Paul's will be that for you as well, too, and an encouragement. So if you would, help me welcome Paul as he comes to share part of his story. 
naturally, when I get to speak, I'm beginning to get a cold. <laughs> All right. So I'm just going to read it as I got it. <laughs> so before I begin, I want to explain why, what this testimony is about. I have been in the Assembly of God Minister for about 36 years. That's longer than Chase has been born, by the way. <laughs> I retired last year after over 30 years of employment at the Assembly of God National Office. Chuck Swindle wrote that God must break through the several hard exterior barriers in our lives before he can renovate our souls. For many believers in Christ, and me in particular, there are issues from our past buried deep inside that have never been dealt with, issues that affect our relationships with God and, with, uh, and how we relate to others. So my testimony today is actually the testimony I wrote after working through the Christ Center 12 Steps at a ministry called Celebrate Recovery, which, by the way, took about a year. Much of the terms are not unique to Celebrate Recovery. However, if you have not been associated with recovery groups, either personally or with someone you know, some of these references will, uh, will be new to you. In uh, creating the ministry of Celebrate Recovery, Rick Warren, the pastor of Saddleback Church, and John Baker, the uh, Celebrate Recovery founder, discovered that the Beatitudes found in Matthew 5 mirror the 12 steps common to recovery. They have become known as the eight principles found in the Beatitudes. These eight principles have become an integral part of the Christ-centered uh, ministry of Celebrate Recovery. Toward the end of my testimonies, I'm going to be quoting three of these principles because they express what I needed to know at that point in my journey with Christ to renew my relationship with Him and with others. I realize that there's some people who believe that recovery groups, and specifically Celebrate Recovery groups, are unneeded because believers are, have become new creations in Christ and everything has become new. If you're one of these people, I respect your opinion. However, this is the story of how God redeemed and restored my life through Celebrate Recovery at a time when I needed him most. And I found in the past 10 years that I've been a part of Celebrate Recovery, God has used this ministry to bring many unbelievers to faith and to restore fellow believers in Christ who are in desperate need. During my testimony, you'll hear me use the letters CR. That refers to Celebrate Recovery. So this is my testimony as I would give it at a Celebrate Recovery meeting. Hi. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ who struggles with and celebrates recovery in the areas of mental health issues, codependency and control, and self-worth. My name is Paul. First, I very... (laughs) Barry used to leave the music at the Celebrate Recovery I used to belong to. (laughs) So first, let me credit the illustration I'm about to give you uh, to Brian Schmidtgall, who's a pastor or was a pastor in North St. Louis, who graciously gave me permission to use it. During the Korean conflict, North Korea implemented a new tactic when they captured soldiers. They called it brainwashing. Instead of grouping POWs together in barracks, as was done in World War II, they would take the soldiers and separate them from one another. They didn't want them talking to one another. They wanted to isolate them, make them feel alone. Next, they would encourage ratting out one another, so when anyone tried to communicate using Morse code on the wall or passing notes or any other way, a fellow uh, soldier might rat them out, and if he did, that soldier would be rewarded. It began to drive in these soldiers the feeling that I don't even know who my enemy is. I don't know if it was the guard or the guy I was in the bunker with just now. They were alone and began to distrust everyone. Then the Koreans began to filter the news. They would take accurate and real reports, filter out everything that was good, and only allowed the bad news through. So here's a report about how America was losing on this front, Here's another of how many casualties occurred. Here's a copy of the New York Times with an editorial about how we should retreat, how we should not be there, how we should pull out. 
They would take all these arguments, all these editorials, all these comments, statements, quotes, and statistics, and filter them. These men were alone, isolated in their thoughts, and they were hearing these negative news reports again and again and again and again, until finally these brave, valiant, courageous men would lay down one night, put their head on the cold concrete floor, roll a blanket over their eyes, and never wake up. It wasn't a bullet that killed them. It wasn't a stab wound that festered. It was the lack of hope. The Koreans sold their hope, and it literally killed them. Without hope, it's impossible to have faith, because Hebrews 11.6 tells us faith is being sure of what we hope for. How can we have faith if we don't have hope? I told the story because when I came to celebrate recovery the first time, I felt almost like that. I was coming out of a major depression caused by medications I'd been taking to prevent another heart attack. Although the depression was being treated and getting better, the feelings of hopelessness didn't. They just got worse. At that time, I'd been a Christian for almost 40 years. I'd seen the Lord do incredible miracles. I'd seen him transform lives. But I couldn't get past this feeling of being hopeless, that my life would never change. All of the stuff that had been building inside of me for years had all come to the surface, and I didn't think I could ever change. Then at the prompting of a friend, I came to celebrate recovery. In 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul said, I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Then he told about an affliction he had for which he prayed three times to be delivered. But God's answer was, my grace is enough for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul's response is significant. He wrote, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that God's power may rest on me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. My story, like yours, is a story of weaknesses. This morning, I'd like to share about my weaknesses and God's victory in my life. So growing up in the 50s and 60s was challenging enough without being raised in poverty by an emotionally absent father and a domineering, verbally abusive mother. There were seven of us kids, five boys and two girls. My twin brother and I were the youngest boys. Okay, technically, I was the youngest, having been born a half an hour before my brother. A fact Patrick would never let me forget. <laughs> my, twin, my two sisters were uh, younger than all of us boys. I can only remember four years of my childhood when things were good at home. Between the ages of four and seven, we lived in the country in this huge house that had lots of outdoor space to play and a lot of trees to climb. Then we moved into the city. Over the next couple years, my mother became angry, really angry, almost all the time. I could never figure it out. She seemed to be angry at everyone, but especially I felt at me. No matter what I did, it wasn't good enough. Mom was always threatening, wait until your father gets home. And my, when my dad came, he just laughed. Mom screaming, dad chuckling, that's most of what I remember. That's not to say there weren't any good times. They just didn't last. To give my mother the benefit of the doubt, she wasn't angry with me specifically. She was just angry. We had moved from a huge house that fit all of us with enough land to have a half-acre garden into a row housing apartment with two bedrooms, nine people in two bedrooms, and a postage stamp backyard. As an adult, I understand her anger. There were no outlets for her, no safe place where she could deal with all of her hurts. So she just became angrier and angrier, but it seemed that we kids bore the brunt of it. My parents finally separated when I was 14. Mom left and moved to another state. I was devastated. 
At that time, I thought a family with a mom and dad, even one that was as dysfunctional as mine, was better than having a parent abandon us. With mom gone and a dad who wasn't there, either physically because of work or emotionally, we were pretty much left to raise ourselves, and I'm afraid I didn't do a very good job. I didn't have an instruction manual. After divorce, I threw myself into my studies and television. The first was to address my need for approval. The other was to escape. Anything was better than facing reality. My brothers and sisters used beer and marijuana to escape. Three became alcoholics. One even died from complications of cirrhosis and hepatitis C. Now, I didn't get to alcohol uh, for two reasons. First, and most importantly, the grace of God. When I was nine, a woman moved into our neighborhood for the summer, and she would take all the kids to a vacation Bible school. It was there that I accepted Christ as my Savior, although I didn't remember the event until I was in my 40s. It was there that I accepted Christ as my Savior, and I believe that because of this, God protected me. Second was the alcoholic next door. He said he wasn't an alcoholic because he drank beer only on weekends. He would buy a case of quartz, sit in his easy chair, and drink until he was done often not even getting up to relieve himself. I decided I was not going to be like that. I may not have been into drinking, but I found my own escape in entertainment and approval. In 1969, when I was 17, I joined the Navy, more to get away from home than any other reason. But God was watching over me, and a year later, while I was training at the Naval Air Station near Memphis, I committed my life to Christ at a little Assembly of God church in Raleigh, Tennessee. When I got my first duty station in 1971, I started attending a church that would turn into the first megachurch, one of the first megachurches in the charismatic movement. The pastors were holiness Pentecostals who had some very strong opinions what it meant to be a Christian. Jesus was the answer to all your problems. So you didn't need anything or anyone else. Medical doctors, okay, but psychologists weren't, and psychiatrists definitely weren't. Life life as a Christian, after all, was happiness all the time, wonderful peace of mind. God is bigger than your problems, so take all your problems to him. And to me, that implied to no one else. I was also taught that since the Bible says we're to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, we are to live perfect lives. But the more I tried, the more I failed. As I look back, I see my desperate attempt to be everything a good Christian should be. But instead of finding true freedom in Christ, I ended up sublimating all of my problems, burying them so deep that when they finally came to the surface, they would explode like a volcano out of my tortured soul. I tried to be a good Christian, so I I looked for role models to pattern my life after. Subconsciously, I believed I was trying to find a father figure. But in my feeble attempts to be like others, to be liked and admired by others, I've gone through many incarnations, reinventing myself to be just like the people I admired. When I was young, I would imagine myself to be like any of a number of heroes on television. Then I tried to be like my favorite high school teacher. After I was in the Navy, I lived with a Marine Corps major and his family. I wanted to be around him. I wanted to be just like him. I did everything he did except join the Marine Corps. Uh, Have you ever gone through a five-mile run in the middle of summer in Virginia Beach? As the major used to say, only mad dogs and Englishmen. And Marines. About this time, I received a definite call from God to prepare for full-time ministry. God gave me a dream to be able to teach the Bible and help people to know the Lord. So after I was discharged from the Navy, I went to Bible school. I did well in school and loved learning the Bible and getting opportunities to preach and teach God's Word. But even in in Bible school, I fell into old patterns of behavior. Wanting to be approved, I excelled at school 
even becoming vice president of my class. I helped fellow classmates with their studies and did just about anything I could to get them to like me, just as I had with others. In 1978, when I was nearing the end of Bible school, I was home for Christmas vacation. I'd gone to a specific school with my pastor's approval to prepare to teach in the Bible Institute we had in our church. At the Institute's Christmas party, I approached the principal to catch up and was told that they didn't need me or any other teachers. Um, They had all that they needed. Now, I could accept that, except she turned around and, in my hearing, told another faculty member about a person who was also graduating from a different Bible school. They decided that they had to make place for him so he could teach in the church's school. I was devastated. It felt like I had been stabbed in the back and the knife was twisted, and my dream to teach the Bible began to die. I did recover somewhat and decided to finish my bachelor's degree. When I returned to my home church after I'd finished, I was pretty much told I couldn't do anything in the church. I really hadn't been a part of that church body for four years, they said, because I was in an out-of-state school, a school, I might add, that the pastor approved. Discouraged, I took a job loading trucks and slowly watched my dream of teaching the Bible die completely. About eight months later, Joe, a friend of mine from the Navy, who was a training executive in a major computer corporation, contacted me. He invited me to come stay with him and his family and find a job in electronics, which I had been doing in the Navy. So in 1981, I moved to Minnesota and worked in mainframe computers for a few years. I even became a technical writer for computers. But because my dream had been destroyed, in my mind, that meant I was a failure. I grasped for something to take its place and began the old habit of trying to reinvent myself, trying to be anyone but me. I tried to be like my very talented twin brother, the artist. And then there was this good friend, Steve. He was a bodybuilder. I tried to be like him. And then I moved to Missouri in the late 1980s, and there was this cowboy preacher. And, well, I hope you get the idea. I wanted to be anybody but me, because no one could possibly like me for who I really was. I put on facades, fronts, the person I just knew they had had to like. I spent money I didn't have, gave lots of money, time, and effort, all to no avail. When I stopped making the effort to be a friend, for the most part, these friendships evaporated. And still I thought I could convince yet another person to be my friend. But you know, there's all kinds of people around me who could have been my friends, but I wanted the successful and good-looking ones to be great, with great personalities to be my friends. One study called it the cheerleader or football hero syndrome. You'd do anything to be friends with a cheerleader or football quarterback because they have it all together. No one steps on them. Everybody likes them. But the only problem is that they don't have it all together. They have just as many hurts, habits, and hang-ups as everybody else. In the middle of all this dysfunction, God began to renew the dream he gave me in the early 70s to teach the Bible. So I moved to Springfield, Missouri to go to seminary. And while I was in seminary, I was offered a job to lead a team of editors who produce Sunday school literature for adults. Although I wasn't in a classroom, I was enabling hundreds of thousands of teachers around the world to make the Bible accessible to anyone. It was a dream job. But even though I had this great job and was doing something that was a dream job of a lifetime, there were things from my past that needed to be resolved, things that were festering beneath the surface that I needed to expose to the light But that would take God to enable me to do it. In the early early 90s, a few years after I took the job as editor, I was on a business trip when a man tried to sexually assault me. 
I was emotionally devastated. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I felt ashamed and dirty. I relived the event over and over in nightmares. I finally made an appointment to talk with my pastor. He referred me to a psychologist. I felt like a complete failure. It had been pounded into me from the pulpit early in my Christian walk that psychologists were bad and Christians didn't go to them, that I didn't need them, that Jesus was all I needed. And now I was going to a psychologist. I felt like a complete failure at life because I wasn't able to trust Jesus enough. I didn't have enough faith to fix my emotional problems. I sat in the parking lot for a long time before I went in for the first appointment. And in my visits with him, all the things that I had sublimated since my childhood came to the surface. All the things that I had hidden, all the nastiness and violence exploded out of my heart week after week. It wasn't pretty. During the 18 months of counseling, life got back to some semblance of normal. But after I stopped going to counseling, it wasn't long before the old habits, wanting to be anyone but me, took hold again. Yet now everything was open. I couldn't hide from my past. I knew I had problems, but I didn't seem to know how to get over them. I tried to get help from one Christian self-help group in my church, but that was a failure. During one session, while going through an exercise in the curriculum, a woman verbally attacked me. I was in shock. The leader did nothing. And I was once again emotionally devastated. I left and told myself that I would never get involved in that kind of group again. And that was about the time I told my friend about my desire to know Christ. Interestingly enough, he's a psychologist, (laughs) but not the one I went to. And that's when my life began crashing around me. God had to get me my attention. The heart attack, the surgeries, the serious side effects of meds I was prescribed, the incredible amount of money I owed, I, and so many other things spiraled me down into such a deep depression that I felt God had abandoned me. During the worst part of my depression, I would come home almost every day from work at the national office, fall on my face, and cry for an hour. One thing I did to help me and remind me that even though I felt abandoned, God was still with me, was to put a small nativity on my coffee table so I would see it every time I came home, every time I walked into the room. It did not stop me from feeling abandoned, but it gave me an anchor. And even though I felt abandoned, I hung on to the truth that God is Emmanuel. God with us. God with me. Yet I still felt utterly alone and abandoned. You see, God had to strip me of everything I trusted so that I would listen to him, so that I would trust him. I had to come to a place where I would stop and admit that my life had become unmanageable, that I am powerless over my addictions and compulsive behaviors, and that my life had become unmanageable, that I, that I cannot control my tendency to do the wrong thing. I had to come to a place where I earnestly believed that I mattered to God and that he would lose his power to help me recover. I had to come to a place where I would turn my life and my will over to the care of God. And that place is Celebrate Recovery. Before I came, I talked with the ministry leader. He assured me that Celebrate Recovery was a safe place where God helped me deal with the issues I was facing. So I came to a meeting. 
I cannot express to you how safe I felt that first day I was at there. I was at that meeting. I cannot tell you how the hopelessness that I would never find help for these issues was transformed into hope that first night. Needless to say, I took my first surrender, my first blue surrender chip. Looks, it actually is this one right here, and I began my journey of recovery. Now I could recite the rest of the principles to you as well as the 12 steps, but I I hope you get the idea. I need first to admit that I was one of those people, one of those people who know they're spiritually bankrupt and know that their only hope is in the one and only higher power of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of those people who know that only when they're transparent, acknowledging that they continually need God's help and are in need of a group like Celebrate Recovery that will lovingly hold them accountable. I've been a part of Celebrate Recovery for over 10 years, and during that time, God has continued to work in my life. One thing he's done has helped me get out of debt. Because of the way I mismanaged finances, I owed well over the amount that I earned in a year. Yet in just under three years, with the Lord's help and the help of my sponsor and accountability team, that debt was completely eliminated. Another issue that I, that I had to surrender to the Lord is my tendency for hoarding. Imagine that, being raised in a poverty order. <laughs> Although I have, uh, all the effects of this character defect have not been resolved yet, with the help of my sponsor and other friends at Celebrate Recovery, as well as the Lord, I've made significant strides toward gaining freedom from my hoarding tendencies. One more character defect that God has shown me is that ten- my tendency to want to control every situation. He wants me to turn over control of my life to Him. In 2016, I had the profound privilege of going to Celebrate Recovery East Coast Summit. And while listening to a, s- a testimony and a new vignette by the skit guys based on the Serenity Prayer, I had a moment of clarity. I had stepped out of leadership at Celebrate Recovery for a while so I could work on my own issues, but God was calling me back to leadership. I knew I was trying to control my life, but God showed me that he wants to be the one in control. He wanted to be the one in control of my future, control of my ministry, control of my life day by day and moment by moment. He wanted me to surrender everything to him. Recently, the Lord clearly indicated to me that it was time to step away from my dream job of a, of a lifetime of being an editor. Although I had planned to work until I was 70, God had other plans for me. So on the first day of April in 2018, I retired after 30 years. And I'm totally at peace with following the Lord in this step, even though I have no idea what my life is going to be like. But it doesn't matter because I've surrendered my life totally to Jesus Christ, and I've given him complete control. Last summer, the ministry leader at RCR, I attended excuse me, that I attend, and his wife, the assimilation coach, moved away. And I was asked to become ministry leader. God has a real sense of humor uh, putting me in charge of ministry since I have control issues. But taking the position of ministry leader is yet another step in surrendering my life and my will over to the Lord. And I believe he'll show us the right people to help build the team and other leaders to help us continue ministering to broken people. One of the things that people in recovery do is to make amends for harm that we've done to others, which I've done quite a few times. A few weeks ago, it became apparent that I needed to make amends for some things I had been harboring about one of my classmates in Bible school 40 years ago. So at our 40-year reunion in October, I met with him to make my amends. This man is an evangelist who travels the world and has seen literally hundreds of thousands of people come to Christ. Which, to tell you the truth, makes me a bit intimidated by him. 
When we make our amends, we're, we're taught not to worry about the reaction of the people we're making amends to because it's not about them. It's about getting right with God. So there's always the possibility of having some negative reactions. And let me tell you, I've had some pretty bad ones. So I was quite apprehensive about making my amends with him. However, when we sat down, I knew I had no need to be apprehensive. This, the way this man responded just blew me away. What he said is significant, not just to people in recovery, but to everybody, every believer. With tears in his eyes, he looked at me and said, we all minister from our brokenness. God has extended such great grace to me. How can I not extend grace to you? Through Celebrate Recovery, God has totally changed my life. I don't know what the future will hold or where God will lead me, but I know that Celebrate Recovery is going to be at the heart of it because I'm one of those people now, and I'm glad I am. Because Celebrate Recovery is here, God has renewed hope within within me, something I desperately needed and something I still need. My forever family at Celebrate Recovery have created a safe place where I don't have to worry about what other people think and accept me just like I am without judging me. In spite of my hurts, habits, and hang-ups, they continue to be patient with me as I work through the steps and principles, identifying more areas that I need to surrender to Christ, more areas that he and my sponsor and accountability partners will help me to recover from. And I found a place of service, helping others with their journey of recovery through sponsoring men and leader and leading co- and co-leading step studies, as well as becoming the ministry leader of my celebrate recovery. Now, I cannot tell you what you should take away from my testimony because each of us are at a different stage in our walk with Christ. However, I can, I can let, tell you a few lessons that I've learned. First, in recalling all of the events of my past, I've learned how God has always been a part of my life even when I wasn't aware of him, even when the worst pages of my life were being written. Second, I'm only as sick as my secrets. That's a pretty common phrase in recovery, but I found it to be true. When I became honest with myself, I found that the negative aspects of my life, the sin and character defects, no longer had power over me, and Satan could not accuse me of the secrets of my past because they were no longer secrets. They had lost their power. Third, I minister best when I minister from my brokenness. It keeps me real and gives me a point of connection with others that I would not otherwise have, regardless of who they are or what place society might assign them. Fourth, very little of what happened in my life is what I planned or expected. The people I know, the jobs I've had, the journeys I've taken have been, for the most part, out of my control, but not out of the control of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's been with me through every joy and heartache, and from these experiences, I have found my life first. Philippians 2, 12 and, 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And finally, there are fewer jo- few joys greater than being able to tell others of the tremendous miracles that God is has uh, done in my life, for which I am literally eternally grateful. Now, after a testimony such as mine, a Celebrate Recovery meeting would finish with everyone standing and saying the serenity prayer. This is probably not the one you've heard quoted or read on plaques. That prayer is actually only the first four lines of the prayer attributed to Reinhold Niebuhr. 
So before Chase comes up, I would like all of you, I would like to ask all of you to stand and say the serenity prayer with me. I think it's going to be on the board behind me. Um, so let's say it together. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Thank you for being here and walking this journey with me. Chase. We're going to worship here in a moment, but uh, a couple thoughts. I, uh, uh, one of the words that kept coming to mind as Paul was speaking was the word integrity. Um, we often think of the word integrity means something like the person who always does everything right, <laughs> you know, the person who gets it all right, but that's not the definition. Integrity has this idea of wholeness, of strength, because everything is accounted for, an integral, a whole number. Um, one of the things that just rings so clear, as Paul shared his story with me before, too, is, is the power of honesty. Um, as we've been talking during this Christmas season about what it means for God to be with us, I'm just struck by the fact that um, the Christmas story is God coming incarnate, in flesh, in a manger, that God would come and embody reality. And I wonder if so much of what we miss about God's presence is because we live so much of our lives in a pretend world. We pretend that we have everything together. We pretend that life is going well. We show up around friends and family and say, how are you doing? Great, how are you? And pretend as if everything was working. Um, We miss God, not because he's absent from us, but because he is incarnate in reality and what is true and what is real. And we choose instead to live in a world that we pretend. Um, Paul's story is such a powerful reminder to me that we are only as sick as our Secrets, and that God is in the midst of those most broken and difficult places. That's where we find Emmanuel, God with us. Um, Let's pray. Paul, thank you again, and we'll worship this morning. Heavenly Father, we are deeply grateful for Paul's story this morning. The ways in which through deep pain and through struggle, but through courageous honesty, you show yourself to be with us. God, how often it is true that the things we pretend away and run from and ignore are the very places that your spirit is most at work. And so I pray by Paul's word, and as he's turned our attention to your word, that you would give us too that kind of courage to be honest about who we are, to look honestly at the ways in which we each are broken, to be people of integrity who take account for everything in our lives, not perfect, not proud of what we discover there, but willing to see it, to acknowledge it, and in so doing to discover that you were the God that came into just that kind of brokenness, incarnate, God with us, taking on flesh, becoming our sin, bearing our shame, so that God, by your mercy and your grace, we might face our sin, not with despair, but with hope, 
that you are redeeming these broken lives, that you are making us a new creation, that Christmas is the story by which your kingdom comes. And as we prayed, all things are made right. That God, I love that line of that prayer, that we might find a reasonable amount of happiness in the brokenness of this world, but God, we would live for a supreme happiness, an eternity with you that's to come. And our path to it, as the Beatitudes teach us, our humility, a poverty of spirit, a brokenness that's willing to mourn, a meekness that's willing to wait, and even in the face of persecution, to believe that these, the honest, the integrous, are who you pour out your spirit, your kingdom to. So we worship you this morning with this boldness that Paul has given us to be honest about who we are and to receive you in the reality of the work you're doing in that place. It's in your name we pray. Amen.